Neuropathways, a Cleveland Clinic podcast for medical professionals exploring the latest research discoveries and clinical advances in the fields of neurology and neurosurgery. Welcome to another episode of Neuropathways. I'm your host, Alex Raygrant, neurologist in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute. In an effort to explore the latest advances in neurological practice, today we're going to talk about the complexities of acute stroke treatment and making the best timely decision for patients. I'm very pleased to have Dr. Shazam Hussein here with us. Dr. Hussein is an interventional neurologist and director of the Cerebrovascular Center in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute. Shazam, welcome to Neuropathways. Great, thank you for having me. I'd like for our listeners to get a better idea about you. Tell us just a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? Where did you train? And when did you begin your career at the Cleveland Clinic? Great, yeah, well, actually, I grew up in Canada. I was born in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, and uh, grew up there. Actually, did my medical school there at the University of Saskatchewan as well. Uh, from there, I transitioned over to the University of Alberta, where I did my neurology and stroke training. And from there, then, actually came down to Cleveland Clinic. Uh, I was coming down here to do the fellowship in interventional uh, neuroradiology. Uh, it was supposed to be a two-year stay and then head back to Canada, but uh, they've treated me very, very well at Cleveland Clinic and have been here ever since. Uh, and that was, I came here in 2008. Well, we're very lucky to have you. Thank you. It's good to be here. <laughs> so, Shazam, let, let's start off with this. For those of us who don't do a lot of stroke work, can you just talk generally about how common and important stroke is to the general population? Yeah, it's, 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 it's important to talk about this as well. It's really an underappreciated condition. Uh, overall, it's actually the fifth leading cause of death, and perhaps more importantly, it's the leading cause of medical disability uh, in the United States, uh, with estimated cost per year of around $70 billion. So it has a huge impact to the population. And unfortunately, we're actually seeing younger and younger patients having strokes as well, which is really hitting them in the prime of their lives. Uh, as, as you know, uh, at one time it was really considered a disease of the elderly, but it's really not not the case anymore. Almost about 40% of the patients we're seeing at the Cleveland Clinic, for example, are under the age of 65. So wow. it's a pretty big number. So Really important. So stroke treatment can really be pretty complex. Tell us about the current options available to assess someone with a new stroke. How do we check them out? Yeah, it's a, it's a great time in stroke, actually, because as opposed to before when it was really thought to be an untreatable disease, we have really good treatments now that are available for stroke. And so our focus when a person first arrives to the hospital is to try to determine is this a type of stroke that we can potentially offer some kind of treatment for? Uh, very, very broadly, the, one of the biggest differentiations we have to make early on is whether it's a ischemic type of stroke where a blood clot blocks a blood vessel and blocks it from uh, blood flow, or is it a hemorrhagic type stroke or a bleeding type of blood stroke? And even the best clinicians in the world, you cannot tell the, if it's an ischemic stroke or a hemorrhagic stroke unless they have that CAT scan being performed. And so a lot of the focus in on, from a process standpoint early on is how can we get that CT scan done very, very quickly to allow us to see whether there's a bleeding type stroke or the ischemic type stroke. Uh, once we've made that determination, then we, in the meantime, we're also working on trying to determine, you know, when the last seen well time of the patient was, uh, are there any other comorbidities or other factors in this case that would prevent uh, some of these acute treatments to be offered, and then making sure we're activating the system to be able to either deliver the types of treatments. Uh, overall, there's two major types of treatments. One is the thrombolytic therapy, TPA, uh, which we can deliver through the intravenous, and also then thrombectomy treatment where we can remove the clot out of the blood vessel. 
Stroke treatment can obviously be very complex. What are the current options available to assess someone with a new stroke? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I think to, to take it one step before we get into the different options, I think we sh let's talk a little bit about the different treatments that are available. Because really the workup is tailored towards determining which of the treatments you might be able to deliver. So we're talking about the ischemic type of strokes where the blood clot has blocked the blood vessel. Essentially, there's two main therapies that we can offer. One is intravenous thrombolytic therapy using an agent called TPA. Uh, which we can offer within the first four and a half hours after their Pearson's symptom onset. Uh, the other is for a subtype of uh, the ischemic strokes called emergent large vessel occlusions or ELVO type strokes. And this is where we can use mechanical thrombectomy treatment where we can actually take a catheter up through the blood vessels to where the clot is located and remove it out of the blood vessel. And so really that early time period, what we're trying to focus in on is trying to determine if a patient's eligible for those therapies or not, and then activating the system in order to get them those therapies delivered. Um, so in terms of the types of things that we can do for patients is usually when a patient first arrives to the hospital, uh, we're going to do a very, very quick evaluation of the patient to determine very important historical factors, or also about comorbidities or other conditions that might influence the type of therapies. Uh, for example, the last seen well time, which is where the time clock really starts for us. And at the same time, we're really activating our imaging. Usually most of it is done by CT, where we can get a CT scan done, a CT angiogram to check the status of the blood vessels, and potentially using things like CT perfusion or MRI to help select out the patients that might have more severe type strokes and mm -hmm. to determine how much brain can be saved. When you have a patient with acute ischemic stroke and you've done the initial evaluation, how do you determine the course of treatment after that? I mean, when do you decide they should go to an endovascular approach? How does that, how does that happen? Yeah, it, it, it's all really happening simultaneously. We'd like to talk about this parallel processing when we talk about uh, acute stroke evaluation that uh, we don't do things kind of you know, checking off the box to say, is this a thrombolytic candidate and then the endovascular candidate? We're going to try to do it all simultaneously. Uh, but really, again, given how quickly this has to occur, you have to have good processes in place to try to make sure you're doing it as efficiently as possible. For the thrombolytic therapy side of things, what we really need there is to see, is the patient within a time window for thrombolytic therapy, which is first four and a half hours after their symptom onset? And then in determining that, then are they eligible for the therapy? Meaning, is the CT scan showing, is there any bleeding on the scan or not? Uh, do we have other contraindications to the thrombolytic therapy? For example, have they had recent surgery? Have they had bleeding, like a GI bleed or something in the last, uh, in the short period before the patient's being considered for these treatments? Uh, or are there, you know, other co contraindications that might be present? And then, of course, making an assessment of the risk and benefit of the medication. Uh, the, the medication thrombolytic therapy, TPA, through the NINS-TPA trial does show substantial benefit within the first three hours of being administered. And we know from ECAS-2 that within three to four and a half hours, it also has a substantial benefit in, in improving outcomes at the three-month mark. But the flip side of it is it does carry a risk of bleeding with it as well. Overall, we generally quote about a 6% risk of bleeding, which the most catastrophic being if they occurred some kind of intracranial bleeding. So a lot of the contraindications are kind of tailored towards assessing that bleeding risk that the patient has. And at the same time, we see what the stroke deficit is. And if it makes sense, if it looks like it's a disabling stroke deficit and we don't have a lot of those contraindications or those contraindications that would seem to be at higher risk, then we can give the intravenous thrombolytic therapy. And oftentimes the system's so primed now, it's very, very nice that the patients are going very, very quickly to CT scan, we can often deliver the, the thrombolytic therapy right there in the CAT scan, actually, to get that going as quickly as possible. 
on the mechanical thrombectomy side of things, uh, what we're doing there is that we need to get first identification of that there is some kind of large vessel occlusion. You can do that somewhat from the clinical examination if we're seeing that the patient has a very, very high stroke scale. We use the National Institutes of Health stroke scale, NIH. SS stroke score. Um, if that's very, very high, that can give you some clues that it could be very likely. But really, you want some kind of vessel imaging, which in practical purposes tends to be the uh, CT angiogram. Uh, once you have a CT angiogram that identifies a clot that's sitting in either the internal carotid artery, M1 or M2 segments of the middle cerebral artery, or in the vertebral or basilar artery, then that patient potentially can be a candidate for the mechanical thrombectomy. I guess there's a couple of different endovascular techniques that can be done. Uh, again, how do you guys decide which way to go and which patients to do what procedure with? Take us a little further down that road. Sure. From a, selecting from mechanical thrombectomy, really the first step is just decide whether they're a candidate or not for a mechanical thrombectomy. And there, what you're really trying to determine is, is there brain that we can save by removing that clot out of the blood vessel? And so usually when we're going through it, we're assessing three major factors. Is there a large vessel occlusion or not, as we've talked about, which you can get very, very quickly from your vessel imaging. Uh, you need to know where's the brain lacking blood flow, which you can get from either the clinical examination, determining which parts of the brain are not functioning, because by definition, brain tissue that's at risk from lack of blood flow is going to be electrically silent, so it has to produce symptoms. And then the other really key piece of information is trying to determine what the core of the infarction is. What is the brain that's already damaged and irreversibly damaged that you're not going to be able to reverse? And that is really a very imaging-based uh, decision. You can do it off CT scans using things like the aspect score, uh, but potentially also using your uh, other imaging modalities, diffusion-weighted imaging on MRI, or using your CT perfusion, you can get an estimation of that core infarction. And what you're really looking for is the patient that has a small you know, bit of core infarction, small bit of irreversibly damaged tissue, but there's a large area that's lacking blood flow. And that's really the ideal patient to go for these mechanical thrombectomies, because if you get that blood flow restored, you're going to be able to save all that brain that's lacking blood flow and prevent it from becoming that irreversibly damaged core tissue in the future. So Shazam, I understand there are different techniques you can use when you're doing mechanical thrombectomy. Can you talk a bit more about the different techniques and how you might think about using them? Sure. Um, it, right now, there, there's probably two main techniques that are utilized when we're in the setting of a mechanical thrombectomy. Uh, that is the either using direct aspiration, which uh, basically you take a large uh, flexible catheter up to the, where the clot is located and essentially apply a vacuum to it to try to get it to engage with the catheter, sometimes even ingesting the whole thing and just sucking it right out, or other times trapping it at the end of the catheter and then being able to pull out the system. Uh, the second technique is what we call a stent retriever technique, uh, where essentially it's like a stent on a stick. You have a, a stent that's on a wire. We open it up into the clot, uh, give it about five minutes or so to let it, the clot engage with the stent retriever, and then with the stent still open, pull down the whole system altogether as one, uh, usually with some aspiration in association with that as well. Um, and then that the idea there is you're essentially going to drag that clot out with that stent being open. Uh, most of the clinical trials that were done were done with the stent retriever technique. And so that's probably been, uh, of the two modern techniques, as we like to call them, uh, probably the one that has a little more evidence behind it. Uh, although more recently now, the direct aspiration technique has been really compared, uh, you know, in a randomized fashion along with the um, stent retriever technique and largely found to be equivalent. Um, and so most People in the field, I think, feel that the two techniques are, are very similar in terms of their effectiveness in removing clots out of the blood vessels as well as safety. 
Um, now, from a cost perspective, this is where it gets a little bit interesting that if you're talking about doing a, a direct uh, aspiration, you can just use that using the large board catheter. You really don't need additional devices or things to be utilized. And so potentially people are arguing that the cost of the procedure might be a lot less um, in using and using less devices. So whether or not that will completely sway practice, uh, you know, towards use of the direct aspiration, hard to say at the moment, uh, especially as there's newer and newer device technology that's coming around. So how far out, say I have a acute ischemic stroke? I mean, how many hours out potentially could you be able to do an endovascular treatment? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. And, and really the th- thinking has changed a lot on this uh, as well over time. So initially we were very, very time-based and had time windows. So we used to say, well, only within the first six hours after the stroke symptom onset, we'd be able to then go and offer the thrombectomy. And that was largely people had a, a, a nervousness or a fear about potentially causing hemorrhagic transformation. Once you open up that blood vessel, restoring blood flow to that part of the brain and you could have bleeding into the brain as a result. As time has gone on, we found that using uh, imaging modalities we are actually able then to pick out those patients who have a small core infarction but a lot of brain to save, really irrespective of where they are in the time window. You can still safely open up those blood vessels and their risk of having a hemorrhagic transformation seems to be still quite low. And so now as opposed to having just the first six hours in which to offer therapy, we have clinical trials now that have gone up to 16 and 24 hours that have established that it's a safe paradigm and actually highly effective in improving patients' outcomes to go even out to up to 24 hours. And there are even our patients even after 24 hours that we've come across where, again, we have that small core infarction, large area of lack of perfusion, indicating a lot of penumbral tissue or brain to be saved. And we've been able to open up those patients also successfully. Uh, the other interesting thing about the time window is when we come to the posterior circulation, uh, when you have these basilar artery occlusions. And there, it, it seems that there's actually, you know, you can even go up to 72 hours or more uh, after the last seen well time. Although there, it really, I think the what starts your clock ticking in that situation is probably when they develop either coma or quadriparesis. Probably there's not as much time if those symptoms start to develop, but uh, oftentimes with the stuttering types of strokes, they can be very, very far outside their window and you can still effectively and safely offer therapy. What makes you excited about stroke treatment for the future? Where do you envision things going in the next 5, 10, 15 years beyond where we've already gotten to? Yeah, acute stroke therapy, uh, and it's been exciting even just in the last five years to see all the leaps and uh, bounds that uh, treatment has developed. Uh, I think coming forward in the future, I think the most immediate challenge that we have is now that we have this very, very highly effective therapy in mechanical thrombectomy, trying to get the patients to the right hospital the first time. And so organizing stroke systems of care has been a real focus and will continue to be a focus, I think, over the next few years. We've had a tendency when we talk about interactions with EMS uh, professionals to try to bring patients to the hospital. The tendency is just to try to get that patient as quickly as possible to the closest hospital, mainly because of the intravenous uh, thrombolytic therapy, trying to deliver that as fast as possible. But uh, it's becoming very apparent that for these large vessel or severe types of strokes, it's probably better to get them, even if you have to bypass a smaller center and it would take you an extra, say, 10, 15 minutes to get to a larger center that can offer the thrombectomy, it's probably better to actually bypass that closer hospital and get to the the larger center because we know getting to the first hospital is usually very quick, but getting from hospital A to hospital B can sometimes take up to three hours of time. And you're talking about losing 2 million brain cells a minute in the situation of acute stroke, that three hours can be really devastating to a patient. 
So similar to what was done in trauma, where we've designed trauma centers, level one, level two, level three, I think we're going to have to do something similar within stroke, where patients are going to be able to be identified in the field as perhaps being a more severe type of stroke, and bringing those patients to your level one or comprehensive stroke center, and that, and that way we have all the potential treatments available to that patient as quickly as possible. Looking past that, looking forward to even more down the line, I think there's a lot of really great development that's going on in the field. When we talk about either acute stroke therapy, I think there's new device technology that's going to be coming around. I think we're just seeing the beginnings of nanotechnology and how its impact might be on acute stroke treatment. And of course, on the, we've just really been focused on acute stroke therapy when we talk about the recovery side of things. Also, very, very interesting work that's being done with different devices, uh, deep brain stimulation, uh, as well as, uh, you know, stem cells and other treatments that could potentially, those patients who unfortunately do suffer a stroke, how can we get them to recover better from the event that's occurred? Thanks, uh, Shaz. So it sounds like a very exciting time in stroke and, you know, looking forward to more, more in the future. This concludes this episode of our Neuropathways podcast. You can find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash neuropodcast. Subscribe to the Neuropathways podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from experts in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute on our ConsultQD website, consultqd.clevelandclinic.org slash neuro, or follow us on Twitter at MD, all one word, that's at MD on Twitter. Thank you for listening. Please join us again soon. <laughs>